Welcome to another edition of Cybersecurity Dispatch. This is your host, Andy Anderson. In this episode, Keeping Cyber Attacks from Blowing Stuff Up, we talk with Efren Ibrahim, CEO of BitBazaar, and an expert on security in the utility and power sector. A former nuclear engineer who has spent decades helping to secure both the OT, operational technology, and IT, information technology infrastructure, Efron shares his refreshingly lucid and frank views on how we can help secure some of the most sensitive assets, namely power pants and the electric grid from potentially deadly cyber attacks. Sit back and enjoy what Efron has to share. My name is Erfan Ibrahim, and I am the founder and CEO of a company called the Bit Bazaar LLC. And I've had this company since 2001, and I've been helping companies align their IT goals with their business goals through making good choices in networking and cybersecurity, network management for a variety of verticals. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we were talking before this about kind of your background, and it's a pretty unique one for someone in the cybersecurity space. So I'd love if you could kind of just share how you ended up doing what you're doing and your your path here. Sure. My background is actually in nuclear engineering. I have an undergrad in physics, a master's in mechanical engineering with a nuclear focus, and a PhD in nuclear engineering. And so I've had experience in both fission and fusion engineering. So I have been dealing with energy and the complexity of energy systems from over 35 years. And so when I shifted gears and entered the information technology world in the mid-90s, when there was a slowdown in the nuclear industry, I began to focus on networks. And the same background of complexity came back as I started understanding how TCP IP networks work and when they don't work and what are some of the security implications. So I started this field from scratch. I was working as help desk at Pacific Bell in Dublin, California. And so my knowledge of TCP IP and networking in general, cybersecurity, communications, is hands-on. It's not taught in a school. I did not take any certifications. I didn't pass any exams, but I did take business requirements and turn them into network designs, built them, tested them, and then even maintained them. So at one point, I was managing the Western backbone of the internet. Uh, for Pacific Bell, where we had two ATM switches, that stands for asynchronous transfer mode, and I had two fiber distributed data interface, or FDDI rings, with Cisco 7000 routers, and all the major ISPs of the U.S. going through the fabric that I was managing. So I have operations background, I have design background, I also have ability to troubleshoot and identify problems. So now over a 23-year period, I have collected quite a lot of experience. I've thought about things. And that's why I have a very different take on the issues that we're facing in the digital world than a person who typically goes through college education and starts working in the technical field. Yeah, I mean, we've had a couple people on, like yourself, who kind of, you know, literally their career ran alongside, like, the building of the Internet. And so I think (laughs) it's like you've seen how the sausage is made, right? So those of us who came later and just sort of ate it and thought it it worked and tasted good, right? You you actually kind of peeked behind the the curtain and seen what's going on back there. And it sounds like some of that stuff is just definitely scary. So walk us through kind of some of the things that you're seeing now that are particularly kind of of concern to you and knowing, you know, informed by that background, kind of understanding how things work and and are tied together. My concern right now is that for the sake of business expediency, networks that were typically not connected to each other are quickly being daisy-chained to each other 
so that applications can run across them and end users can get the benefit of access to data quickly. But there hasn't been much regard to the cybersecurity implications of connecting disparate networks like that quickly without having a proper cybersecurity architecture that provides the appropriate controls at the different logical layers do not allow attackers to come in or if they're inside to move around. And what I'm seeing is an obsession with confidentiality where authentication screens are getting more and more sophisticated, username and passwords are getting longer and longer, hashes are being used, and all of this falls apart the moment an attacker has a pivot in the network because all those security credentials are available to this hacker once they have pivoted and entered the network. And then there's very little that can be done to stop them in the current network design. So this is what my concern is, that business is driving interconnectivity with little regard for cybersecurity. Yeah, and I think, you know, for those who aren't as kind of deeply knowledgeable about the space as you are, right, like the the different networks out there, right? Like the the internet is one network, but there's a number of other networks that existed, you know, using different computers to do different things. For example, like power grids, you know, the, the different computers were talking to each other. That's also a network, but not one that sort of imagined that it would be connected to a more global network. And then, you know, it sounds like the, the yeah, there's so much sort of the only way we many people are thinking about defense is just that perimeter, right? Like hardening that edge. But once you can break through that edge, you're into this sort of uh, world where things are very fragile, very kind of like broken inside. So what are you sort of seeing as what's the solution, right? Like, what is it? How do we kind of get to a better place where these potentially fragile networks are more secure and thinking kind of past that, you know, that initial penetration, right? I mean, it's sort of crazy that we don't assume that that individuals will penetrate that perimeter because they're doing it kind of every day in thousands of different locations, different companies, et cetera. There are a few things that you can introduce into a network to create a layer defense architecture. First and foremost is that boundary wall because you don't want all kinds of malware coming in from the public internet into your corporate trusted network. So having the appropriate firewalls, setting up the firewall policies so that there's role-based access control when individuals log in to the network that based on their credentials, they're only allowed to go in certain places. If there's no purpose for a person to enter the trusted network, they should not be allowed. So firewalls help you do those kinds of things. So definitely a solid firewall with very granular firewall policies to enforce strict role-based access control is the ABC of security. Beyond that, within the trusted network, there should be a concept of segmentation by business function. So it should not be sufficient that once you're authenticated as a trusted employee or a contractor, that you have free reign over the trusted network. You should only be allowed to go places where the use cases justify that you should. In other words, there's a transaction that you need to be a part of that takes you to a certain IP address. Only those access controls should be in place. All others should be blocked. So even though you've been authenticated, you can now only go to authorized sites or nodes within the trusted network based on your job function. So that's what we call network segmentation. And you can enforce that by setting up access control lists on switches. You can also have firewalls within the organization itself to break up the different parts of the network and do authentication. So that's the second level of defense. The third level of defense comes from actively monitoring the traffic that is going on all the critical links and trying to identify if there's any well-known 
malware with a signature flying around the network? And if so, suppressing it so that it doesn't contaminate the network. So that's one type of intrusion detection and prevention. The second kind is harder to do on the information technology side, but easier to do on the operational technology side. And that is what we call context-based intrusion. So you are monitoring actively what the commands are in the various protocols, those communication messages that are going back and forth between users and systems or between systems, and identifying if those commands are legit or not. And if they're not, to block them. So that's the next level of protection that you want to provide. Now, that's much easier to do on an operational technology or OT side, where the SCADA systems are the supervisory control and data acquisition systems, or what we call industrial control systems, that actually manage physical assets. It's much easier to do it there because the protocols are well-defined, the commands are well-posed, the values are expected, so you can set very granular rules and only allow certain messages and values to get to certain nodes and not others. But on the IT side, which is the information technology or the corporate side, that's much harder to do because there's so many applications running on the corporate network at any given time. You've got emails, you've got DNS lookups, you have accounting software, and you have databases, queries going on. So it's very difficult to set up filters that are context-based on the IT side. If you even you set them up, you'll end up with lots of false positives. So it's best that we protect the information technology side using granular segmentation and malware, signature-based malware detection tools, and of course the firewalls. So that would cover the IT side and the OT side. We add this additional intrusion detection system that's context-based. Now the final frontier, of course, is the end node itself. First of all, it needs to be hardened. Hardened means that the operating system should have the latest security patches on it. So there are no well-known vulnerabilities that hackers could exploit in bringing that node down. The second thing that you want to do is if it has the capacity, if the hardware has enough memory and processing capability, that you virtualize it. So you basically set up like a VMware or you could get an open source tool that creates a hypervisor. And what that does is it allows you to then set up virtual machines and then host the operating systems in the virtual machines. And then you put the application in the VM as opposed to directly on the hardware. And what that does is if the machine gets corrupted, you can just replace the virtual machine instance with the last stable one and you're off and running again, as opposed to trying to reformat the disk and putting in a new OS and then rebuilding the machine, which is what you have to do with traditional systems. So these are all things that we can do to go beyond just the perimeter security in building up what I call a layer defense architecture. When you set up all these controls, the hacker, whether an outsider or insider, is thoroughly frustrated as they try to navigate around your network. And they lose motivation and they would go somewhere else, which is exactly what the goal is. Eventually, all networks are penetrable. And that's why in the Advanced Persistent Threat, or APT, I write the P in capital letters. That persistence is what pays off for them. Now, if they, depending on what their goal is about compromising systems, their level of persistence can vary. But at least with this layered defense approach, you're thoroughly discouraging them from continuing. Yeah, that was great. And I think um, like a great kind of overview of, of all of the options that are there. I think two things that are really interesting is that idea of kind of impermanence, like building in that ability to kind of throw things away and then have a fresh one there, I think is not one that necessarily has traditionally been thought of as a way of hardening a system, right? Using virtualization for the very fact that it's that you can replace it quite quickly 
it's beneficial for the for an idea of resiliency, but also potentially for uh, you know reducing that uh, persistence of attackers or malware, right? Like if you're if you're building fresh every day, every week, every month, whatever it is, that anything that might be living there, you know, sort of dies with the old one. But I think what might be really helpful is just for for people who are kind of new to this these concepts is just for you to ground it in a, you know, in, in a real life example. I know you have a lot of kind of experience in the utility and the power space. Could you walk kind of how this looks, how this might look like in real life for, for example, a, a utility? Yeah. Typically in a utility, you have a control center which sits in a enterprise at some major urban area. And then you have a set of substations. Uh, there are the larger ones that have more intelligence in them, and then there are smaller ones that have less energy flowing through them, but there's not that much intelligence there. And then you have street-level transformers all the way to the customer-prem. So what I'm talking about are the networks in the corporate, both on the IT and the OT side. So the control center is the OT part of the network in the enterprise, and then a bunch of substations. So you would set up a firewall for sure between the IT and OT side to make sure that only authorized people are entering on the OT side in the enterprise. And then within the enterprise, you can break it up, uh, the OT network into subnets or, or segmentation of networks by the business function. If it's a transmission company, you may have one network that's monitoring the phaser measurement units, another one that's got all the energy management system in it, and then you may have another one for fleet maintenance and so on. So you can segment the enterprise OT network like that. If you're a distribution company, you may have a subnet for all the meter-related stuff, smart meter-related stuff. You may have one that focuses on all the transformer meters uh, that are out there in the substations. You may have one for that just looks at relays and so on. So you can segment the network up in the corporate side. And then each substation would also have a firewall facing the outside, even though there's no internet connection there at the substation, but it's still trying to block any unauthorized access from the corporate side. So you'd put a firewall on the front. You, again, segment the network in the substation by the functions of cap banks, capacitor banks, or voltage regulators, or relays, and PLCs, and RTUs. You can break the function up of based on the application. And then beyond the substation, if there are sensors along the distribution lines, that those sensors can talk either wirelessly or through twisted pair, like a phone connection, or through fiber back to the substation, and then from the substation back to the corporate. So you create a hierarchical network. And again, you apply the same network segmentation principles based on use cases, and you keep the swim lanes, swim lanes of the, the different functions separate so that they don't mix the traffic onto the same logical subnet. So the IT, the OT, the management, VLAN, and all of these will be separate. The hypervisors could be kept in a separate VLAN or a virtual local area network. By doing this, you can bring in this layer defense architecture into the utility industry. What do you think the sort of challenge of doing that is like your there needs to be an incredible amount of kind of thoughtfulness and design from the operators who are running these systems. Like what, how do you think about the design and the potential cost of segmentation and sort of setting up a network where you are kind of blocking a lot of the traffic? I mean, it's how do people kind of overcome that challenge? It's overcome by having a visionary chief information security officer first who has been given the authority by the chief operating officer to clean up the act. And then that individual is then empowered to bring the network, the security and application people together into rooms and on whiteboards build cartoon diagrams 
of how the final state should look like. And then through gradual maintenance periods, migrate from the current architecture to that desired architecture. But unless the security officer is not in the same team with the network, the security, and the application people, this is not going to happen. The problem that we are seeing in most corporate America, it's not just limited to the utility industry, is that most chief security officers last about 18 months in their job. The first six months, they're trying to figure out what's going on in the organization they moved in. The second six months, they try to make a difference. And the third six months, they're job hunting for their next job. So it's almost like, you know, being an elected official for the federal government, where you're being elected every two years. You only work one year. The next year, you're campaigning to get elected again. So this is why a lot of work is left on the table and is not implemented. The second person comes with their own vision. So what needs to happen is that institutionally, the architecture needs to hold, like the way our constitution is the constant as governments change in our country. The equivalent of constitution is a proper cybersecurity architecture that embraces diversity, that embraces change, but it's still there as a logical framework for everyone to follow. And so at some point, a visionary chief security officer needs to create this architecture. And even if they're leaving their job after 18 months, to pass on this architecture to the next person in command so they embrace that vision and continue. This constant change is what's causing the problem. It doesn't take very long and it doesn't cost much money to redo it. We're talking about the same Cisco firewalls and and routers and switches, and minimal changes in the configuration to create segmentation. I will tell you from example, my previous work where I was at a national lab, we started, we built network with a central site and two substations. It took me four or five months with a couple of people to build it up from scratch. And once we had done it and we had figured out the architecture, we brought that time down from four or five months to six weeks. And after we documented everything, we could do it in two. And I'm talking starting from bare metal and building up the entire corporate and two substations worth of logic. Now, a few people can do this in two weeks with documentation. Most utilities have lots of people and they can contract people. So this is not an excuse at all. I think that it just requires a vision, a will, and then a team that's willing to implement the vision. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm being pesky because I, I think it's it's valuable because I know that the that security teams get a lot of these questions, right? You know, the and I think one of the challenges is always like, well, security is often like an afterthought, right? It's not the first. It's you know, first we want to do a function and then we want it to be secure, but doing things purely for, for doing stuff for security's sake alone, unfortunately, in a lot of organizations, sort of often kind of becomes a second or third or even fourth priority. And maybe that's starting to change because we're starting to just see more and more attacks and sort of the scale of the issues that they can create is rising. What are the you know, how do you sort of sell this to a security team for some of the potential benefits that go beyond just a more secure system? Yeah, well, I'd love to kind of just hear your thoughts there. First and foremost, this mental model that people have that cybersecurity equals confidentiality, which means username and password, digital certificates and encryption. That is fundamentally a flawed mental model of cybersecurity. And this is the reason why it's an afterthought because they say we're gonna set up the whole network and when we're done, we're gonna lock it down with these things. No, that's not security. Security is a very simple concept that says, I will provide data on a need basis, just like in the military, on a need basis, and that's it. There is no such thing as 
global authentication of anything. You are a certain person, you have a certain job function, you'll only be allowed access to X, Y, or Z, nothing else. Kind of like an intranet that's customized, where people, based on their login privileges, only see certain things on the intranet page. Other people with other job descriptions see others. That's an example of what I'm talking about, sharing knowledge or data on a need basis. If you keep that criteria in the design of a network, you will see all these rules that I'm talking about get implemented right off the bat. Now, that's one. Second, I'm going to monitor what you're doing. Even though I've given you access to only things that you're allowed, you may do nefarious things with those assets. So I got to watch you also. So that's where the whole intrusion detection comes in. But intrusion detection wouldn't work if data was not provided on a need basis, because by providing data on a need basis, you're quieting down the network. You're only allowing authorized traffic to move and nothing else. If they try to access other things, they won't be able to. No data will flow. So quiet networks are easy to monitor and identify anomalies. Now when you've done both of those, then you lock it down with additional things with encryption and authentication and all of that. More robust. So availability of data, availability of applications is paramount. The integrity of data is very important. And then the confidentiality. The problem that we're facing in the energy industry is we're getting a lot of people from financial services, banking, you know, industry, healthcare, hopping into the energy sector with their mental models of confidentiality being paramount because over there it is. Your social security number, your account number, or things like that are very confidential information. But in a utility industry, the oil pressure or water pressure or the temperature of the oil in a, in a transformer are not confidential. Their integrity and availability are important to make decisions, but their confidentiality is not that important. So we need to shatter some of these mental models about security being equal to confidentiality because that is what makes it an afterthought rather than sharing data on a need basis and monitoring and preventing anomalous behavior. In our last conversation, you used that term hyper-quiet networks, which I think was a great one to kind of think of what these networks look like. And once you sort of simplified the traffic that's going across these networks, it's a lot easier to monitor, to understand them, right? It's not not like it's doing a hundred things, it's doing like two things, three things, right? And if it kind of goes out yeah. of band. But I guess I'm, you know, the you know, once a system is started to be architected this way, are there other benefits that you start to sort of see beyond ones from a security perspective? I mean, what is a you know, in thinking through that organization, what are the you know, do they start to see better uptime? I mean, how do you kind of sell this to people who aren't, you know, security isn't their first kind of driving need. So the first benefit that you see with hyper-quiet networks, which occur when you create very granular access control lists on switches and do not allow multicast or broadcast packets to fly around, but only unicast packets that are destined for specific IP addresses. What it does is it reduces the CPU utilization of routers and switches and firewalls. And that in itself improves the throughput. You have fewer buffer misses. You have fewer uh, dumps of data because there isn't enough memory to hold it while the other packets are being forwarded. Quiet networks with low CPU utilization are very, very effective in improving the uptime or the availability of applications. They also reduce the latency that an end user will experience. So almost think of it like Christmas Day and you're driving around town. Look how much faster you can get everywhere because all the shops are closed and people are not on the street. Yeah. And then it sounds like, too, beyond hyper-quiet networks, like this essentially installing virtualized uh, machines at the various kind of endpoints running some of these uh, different, you know, sort of pieces of equipment or whatnot you know, the, the amount of effort needed if one of those breaks um, goes 
a real kind of bear of a project of trying to rebuild that whole operating system to like trivial in terms of just reinstalling a server and the sort of the base kind of image that you have of whatever different system is running there. Yeah, so the same way that we, uh, the IT department of a company will create an image of your laptop, and if your laptop gets corrupted, they just reformat the disk and put the new image on. This is even one level more automated than that, where the registries are not even real, they're virtual. So when you bring in the last stable VM instance and you put it in there, it's as if it was the original OS in the VM connected, uh, sitting on this hardware. There is no memory of the last instance. And that's very good to disconnect the actual internals of a machine uh, with uh, the application by using virtualization. The other benefit that it has is that even though there's some overhead in memory and processing in managing a VM instance, on the whole, it's a more efficient use of the hardware resources. But if you can put multiple instances on a single piece of hardware, because not all applications need to access the hardware at the same time. So you have the ability to use the hardware processors more efficiently by having multiple VM instances on the same piece of hardware as opposed to locking it down or putting all the applications in one OS. So the, these are some of the benefits of virtualization in addition to the benefit of hardening the system, making it more resilient to permanent damage. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, I've had lots of conversations um, where one of the biggest challenges is that sort of different uh, life cycles of different pieces of equipment, right? Like the sort of standard, you know, cell phone or even laptop, right? It may, you know, it has sort of an expected usable life of somewhere between like three and maybe 10 years at the out on a laptop, maybe. But, but even after like five, it's starting to get pretty dated. Whereas a good piece of like, of equipment, right, in a utility or a power station or a manufacturing facility, you know, it's usable life maybe 25, 30, 40 years. And so thinking about how those two interact, and I think your ideas about kind of taking the operating system and putting in a virtual, virtualized environment that's not necessarily directly running on that piece of hardware or at least sort of deeply embedded in that hardware is really nice. It's almost like how we have cars now where you can, you know, we're all cars, right? You change the you change the brake pads and you change the tires and you change the windshield wipers because we know those wear out uh, much more quickly and, and we expect them to. So it's almost like using virtualization as, a, as an expectation in the design. So I'd love to kind of have your sort of thoughts and, and whether you're seeing people start to design that way or whether that's just sort of taking existing existing equipment and sort of setting it up that way. So if you look, let me focus on the power sector, uh, yeah. but this will apply to other verticals also. As a result of Moore's law, the price of hardware is coming down very fast. You know, every 18 months, the memory price becomes half, the processing price, uh, price becomes less and the processing speed doubles. So you're getting all of these benefits where getting a powerful computer to host your application, that powerful computer is becoming cheaper and cheaper. If that's the case, there is very little excuse for keeping legacy power systems because of just the hardware. In other words, if a power system is residing on a hardware server, you know, like a standard computer, it, the business case to keeping that old hardware doesn't make sense because the application license fee from a Schneider or ABB or Siemens is a lot more expensive than the price of the hardware on which it's sitting. So my recommendation is let's take advantage of Moore's law and swap out the hardware. Still keep the old license. But then you're able to, with the larger memory and processing capability, be able to virtualize. There's a minimum requirement for virtualization. You can't just take an old, you know, Windows Vista 
type computer and start thinking you're going to virtualize that, it's going to slow it down tremendously. So let's take advantage of the low cost of hardware, but just keep the legacy application because its upgrade may require a big fee and virtualize it so that you can immediately start benefiting from VMs and the resilience and the efficiency of it without having forklift upgrades for the actual power system itself. Now, in some cases, you cannot do that because the application and hardware of the vendor is all built into one machine. It's a purpose-built machine. So there you have to wait for it to reach end of life. But I've seen many SCADA systems that are just sitting on regular Windows Server, you know, R2 2012 or something. So if it's like that, there's no harm in spending a couple of thousand dollars and moving it to the next level of computing. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious, you know, that, and, I, and I've heard different estimates for sort of how much legacy stuff is out there, upwards to like 90% of different systems are legacy systems. What's the, in your experience, the ability to virtualize? Where can things not be virtualized, right? Like, is it like Windows yeah. 2003 can be virtualized, Vista can be virtualized. Where does that sort of stop being possible to virtualize things? Where does that, that rub happen? If you don't have a computer-grade device, it'll be hard to virtualize. Okay. You should be and by able computer, to run... Computer-grade, you mean what? By computer-grade, I mean something that you can install standard applications on if you wanted okay. to use the machine that way. You know, like an Xbox is basically a glorified Linux machine, right? Yeah. That's a computer. But what's not a computer is like the intelligence on a sensor or, you know, a fire alarm or something like that. Those are purpose-built. Yep. You know, there may be an ASIC chip there, but it's not supporting standard computation with an, a separate OS and all of that. That's where you can virtualize. You need more resources. If Many times when things are purpose-built, they keep the least amount of resources possible because it's purpose-built just for that function. That's when right. it becomes difficult to virtualize. Unless the vendor has created the purpose-built device to be virtual. And that's probably what's going to happen with next-generation devices. But many of the legacy pieces of hardware uh, that are out there have so limited computational capability that trying to put a VM on it would make it keel over and die. That's the fastest way to make it inoperable. And we've tried that on certain machines. It didn't work when I was at my previous job. So like even Windows uh, 2003 was having difficulty. We, when we got to the upgraded Dell machines with the 2012 software, the OS, then we were able to virtualize. And even then, we had to put a lot of extra memory to make it work. But since memory is cheap, uh, you yeah. think, you know, if this device went killed over and died, and you think about the monetary cost of that outage, then the investment in a couple of thousand dollars in a piece of hardware is well worth it. So where are, you know, if someone wanted to kind of um, start thinking about doing this, right? I mean, there, there may be those, like you said, those visionary CISOs who kind of have this, you know, who are lucky enough to have the tenure and the experience, but having, having run around and met a lot of people in the space, you know, that unfortunately there, there are too many jobs to do and not enough kind of very experienced people to do them. How would the, they, short of listening to this podcast, how do they kind of make, take the next steps in terms of thinking about building these architectures and, and going from kind of what is like a really high level discussion we're having here to more kind of granular understanding? Where would you point them? I would first point them to creating three swim lanes. You know, just like on a freeway, you have three lanes and each lane has a different purpose. So the leftmost lane you use for overtaking, the middle lane you kind of drive when you're going the long haul, and the right lane is the one that you usually stay if you're real slow or you're planning to exit, right? So there's a function for all three lanes. In the same way, if you do not have virtual local area network set up for IT functions and OT functions and management functions, you're doing something wrong. Mixing those swim lanes creating one logical pipe in which you're moving IT, OT, and management traffic is a big mistake. 
from a cyber perspective. So that's the first thing I would do in cleanup is go site by site and make sure that there is the creation of three virtual local area networks. IT, OT management. What's in management? All the remote access through the secure shell, SSH, or secure sockets layer connections to remote devices from management. All the syslog events that show the alarms from the devices should travel in that management VLAN. That's what you use management VLAN for. The OT VLAN you use for all the traffic of the actual power system application or water or oil and gas, whatever that OT traffic is. Protocols like DNP3, Distributed Network Protocol, or IEC 61850 for substation automation, or Modbus, or OPC. All these protocols are OT protocols. They can run in the OT VLAN. And in the IT VLAN, you run all the IT functions, the DNS stuff, the all the email server stuff and the ERP systems, all that runs in IT. So if you keep the swim lane separate in every site, you are decades ahead of other people. Because right now today, that doesn't happen across the board. They get sloppy and they start mixing the swim lanes. And that's where the tr trouble begins. The nice thing about having a management VLAN with the syslog events coming through it is there's an element of stealth in cybersecurity. So if an event occurs, the hacker doesn't know about the event that they created because the alarms from that event are going through the management VLAN back to a syslog server that actually resides on the IT side. And from the syslog server, emails could be sent to the employees. And also you could visualize it on a Splunk-like tool to figure out and correlate multiple alarms into an event. So that is what I would recommend is separate these, at least these three swim lanes uh, towards that layered defense architecture. What would you say, I mean, in terms of percentage wise and from an adoption perspective, people who are kind of architecting their systems here, are we at 1%, are we at 10%, are we at 50%? It's hard to tell because what you're asking me is what percentage of security people in enterprises today are visionaries. I haven't really done a focus group or a poll to yeah. say that, so it would not be. But as I go around the country, I get a lot of nods from utility. Either they tell me we are already implementing many of these practices, but not all of them, or they tell me, you know, these are great ideas. I wish I had the power to do it because I've been yeah. telling them, like the Aflac duck, I've been screaming Aflac and people are not listening to me. I don't get anyone saying, oh, this is not gonna work, or this is useless. They all kind of empathize and they all support the vision. But what I'm seeing is the greatest impediment to implementing this is the busy schedules of people in just trying to keep the lights on. That is the greatest impediment, that they say we don't have the luxury of time to migrate to this amazing architecture. And that, I believe, is the result of the way cybersecurity is viewed in corporate America. Unfortunately, it's still in the realm of IT, which is a big mistake. How can a company that's so digitally dependent on wealth generation relegate its cybersecurity aspect to the IT? It should be front and center as the supporter of business continuity and have its own budget, its own thing, the way we have for money for OSHA training, the way we have stuff for ergonomic furniture and for sensitivity training against prejudice and all of that. Because these things can cause lawsuits that can ruin a company. That's why they give it priority. Cyber is not getting that attention yet, and that needs to change. If that changes and the money is freed up to support the function, then these acts would be done, what I'm recommending. And I guess I'll, I'll you know, one of the things that I think is interesting is for a non-IT person, you know, how would they think about measuring whether you're moving forward in this vision, right? Like, because I think, you know, that old adage, right, what you measure you improve, right? And you can't improve anything unless you're measuring it, right? Like what are the, yeah. how would you measure the success 
or even begin to, to measure some of the ideas that you're talking about? One of the things I would do, first of all, I would be with Sherlock Holmes myself if I'm an employee and see if I can get into places that I'm not supposed to and then report to management when that happens. That's one thing I would do as an employee. Of course, my career may be limited in that company, but you know, if I really was sincere, I would poke around and see if those policies, if the cyber people or IT people are saying that we have access based on need, let me test it out. The other thing I would do is I would encourage frequent, like in six months or year, have cyber penetration tests done in the company, red team, blue team kind of exercises to identify the vulnerabilities. I feel like too many people are drinking their own Kool-Aid when the cyber people are telling the corporate, yeah, we're all secure because we tested it. I really question, what did they test? Will they ever really identify a vulnerability and tell the management about it? I doubt it. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious of your thoughts. I mean, you even use the word secure, and I wonder, I mean, some, some of the people that I've, I've started talking to and some of the sort of more visionary CISOs or people are almost are abandoning the term security, right? And I mean, having running a podcast where security is literally in the title, I'm, I'm of two minds, right? But uh, <laughs> the, <laughs> they're really talking about resiliency, right? And then yeah. when you start talking about resiliency, that those measures are like time to time to respond, right? Time, you know, uptime or if an incident happens, how quickly can we be back up, right? The cost of doing that. What's your sort of thinking? But, and even as a, you know, if, if you thought you're the, you know, you're the COO or the CEO of a, of a company that has operation o OT systems, how would you, what would be the measure that, that you would say, hey, this is what we're, this is our North Star for us. This is what I want to make sure that we're improving on. I think it starts with human beings first. And the tangible measure would be, do I have a team of cross-cutting skills that is there to do the changes that are necessary to build this layer of defense? That's the first thing I would do is cultivate that team. Second, I would provide them monetary resources and free up their time to go about and do this. And the third thing is I would also help them educate the rest of the people as to what they did so it doesn't look like a black box. Because ultimately, the security of a company is dependent on every employee, not just a small cabal of cyber people. Then when it comes to resilience, a lot of people don't understand the concept of resilience. They use the word loosely but they can't distinguish it from redundancy. And that's not what resilience is. Having another one that can come on when this thing shuts off is not resilience because there are many traumatic events that can occur, whether it's weather-related or an advanced persistent threat, that will take all of the duplicates out with the original. So that doesn't really create resilience that helps with reliability under normal circumstances to improve the availability of the application with the hot swap. But when there's a persistent attack or a natural disaster that hits a geographical area, then the duplicates don't matter. It's much more important to create failure scenarios and then develop mitigations for those failure scenarios. So that's what I would do if I was the CEO or COO, is have these teams work with the company employees to do those contingency plans in the good times. And that is how I would get the resilience and the security. What would be your definition of resiliency? My definition of resilience is that it's the incremental ability to recover from a degraded state that you get by creating proper decision trees, models of failure scenarios. So you think of a system, you think of all the potential ways it can fail, whether from natural disaster or human intervention or a system error. And then you sit as a team of people, business, cyber, network, and you say, how will I recover from this degraded state? How would I fix the parts that got hurt? And as you develop those decision tree models with if, then, and else, you're building incremental resilience. Because when 
the bad time comes, you know exactly what to do in each eventuality. Short of that, yeah, you I've don't seen, have resilience. Yeah, I've seen some cool diagrams, I think out of NIST, that had that sort of that modeling done where, hey, you know, th this system could be degraded 90%, but we could still essentially get the job yeah. done, right? Like the, uh, yeah. and then we have another pathway that we could also use, right? That you got, and then you start to think about, okay, how many different pathways is it possible to, to, to have? And you still got, you know, you, you never have full, full certainty and, and a hundred percent sort of yes. availability. Sure. And, but it just gets much more, you, you start to think, okay, it's becoming very, very challenging for either an right. adversary or a series of events to happen. Yeah, no, I think that's the good. most the most uh, prominent example I would provide you of resilience is the human kidney. The kidney has over a million nephrons, which are tiny capillary tubes through which the dirty blood flows through and gets purified, and the uh, waste goes into the urine duct, and then the clean blood goes back into the body. There are millions such nephrons that are there in the kidney. Now, this is the resilience, that even if 90% of those nephrons are blocked as a result of a condition called nephritis, when those capillaries get blocked because of the inflammation that can occur from hypertension or diabetes or other methods, 90% of the kidney out, the kidney still functions and you can live without dialysis. And not only that, but there are certain types of kidney failures that are called acute kidney failures, where the kidney has an ability to repair the damage and come back to its original level. It's only the chronic kidney failure that requires dialysis. Acute kidney failure requires dialysis for a short period of time till the kidney recovers. That is resilient. That's awesome. Unfortunately, I think based on time, we'll just have to quote to end there, but I think that's a great image to end on. We'll just start designing our systems like kidneys. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Efron, thank you so much for the time and for your thoughts. I really appreciate it. I, you know, one of my most thoughtful uh, interviews that I've done in a long time, and I think people really enjoy hearing it. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you.